Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 17th, 2018, and this is episode 2,252 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Tuesday. Tuesdays are just Jack shows where I take a subject and I break it down and I talk about it. I'm going to talk about a subject that I think for about half the audience is probably, if not their favorite subject that I talk about, it's definitely in their top three. And the other half, eh, I really don't want to do this again, uh, even though I haven't done it for a long time, honestly. And that's permaculture. And I, I, I'd invite you today that if you have any desire whatsoever to provide food for yourself and your family, that you listen with an open mind. In reality, even though we will focus on the food production aspects, if you have a desire in your life to know how to solve problems, to troubleshoot, and to accomplish goals, to define a strategy, and then implement methods with the proper techniques to obtain the results that you want, that you tune in today. I'm going to be addressing a lot of misconceptions about permaculture. I, I hear a lot of criticism of permaculture from people I highly respect, that you go, I understand what you're saying, but you don't know what you don't know, that type of thing. And we'll get into that in just a moment. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. First up, sponsor day number one today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? Well, as you might expect, the Berkey Guy provides Berkey water filtration systems and filters and parts and service for your Berkey systems if you don't have one already. Now look, you should have a Berkey system. If you don't have a Berkey system, you should have some sort of water filtration system. And if you have a good water filtration system, I'm not suggesting you throw it away and switch to a Berkey. I'm suggesting if you don't have one, you consider getting one. And I think when you start from the beginning, for most people, they will find the most economic and affordable solution long-term, that they know they can rely on to do what is promised is the Berkey system. It's really a thing that can't break. Nothing really can go wrong with it. You don't need anybody to come install it for you, that type of thing. It's a gravity-fed system. It looks beautiful in your home. You can set it up in about five minutes. Once you get it set up, you pour water in the top, good water comes out the bottom. It is that simple. And the reason you should be filtering your water Even if you think you don't, like, I don't need this for the apocalypse or the zombies, Jack. Okay, great. Um, every single time that I hear a, a town, a city, or municipality go on a boil water advisory, it always goes something like this. A number of residents turned up sick at the emergency room, and after about a week of investigation, the city has tracked it down to the water supply. Residents are on a boil water advisory until further notice. Okay, that means that you've been drinking contaminated water for that entire duration and you didn't know what you didn't know. That kind of fits in with today's show. That's why I believe you should be using a good water filtration system that filters out the types of things that are not just like things you don't really want there, like additives from the water company, but the things that actually make you sick. And I'm not going to say that Berkey's the only one that does that, but they do a really good job with it. You can depend on Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason and to get in touch with him. Go to his website, directive21.com, directive, and then the number's 21.com. And if you are an MSB member, don't forget your discount when dealing with Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Next up today, knifekits.com. 
America used to be a place where the average man could do a hundred different things well, and a couple hundred more things well enough, and then a couple hundred more things kind of shitty, but if you had to rely on it, you could do it. Now we are the call-a-guy-for-everything society. You know, I don't change my own oil, but I know how. I don't change the spark plugs on my vehicle, but I know how. I don't change my own brakes, but I know how. The reason I don't do it, let's look at a brake job. I can get a brake job done for 119 bucks. And if I sit back on a weekend, it'll take me three to four hours to do a brake job because I'm not going to get in a hurry with it, especially in the summertime when it's really hot out. Now my four hours is worth more than me 119 bucks. But you know what? Well, my son had his brakes go out on his first vehicle. I made sure that he did those brakes with guidance because now he knows how to do it. Because I feel the way I do right now because of where I am in life. If things went sideways for me and I ended up back working some kind of menial job or something, I had to get by, I'd want to know how to do that. And if I had a young person in front of me that needed to know how to do that because they were in that position, rather than bail them out with money, it's better that I bail them out with the skill set so they can just go buy the brakes and we can do it together. That's being able to do stuff. That starts with basic competency. And one of the things that knife making gives you is basic competency in a wide range of things. Let's think about making a knife all the way through, including a sheath. We're going to learn how to first choose a design based on what we want. Then we're going to learn how to actually form and fit handle material. There's a whole variety of tools that go along with that. We're going to learn how to do polishing. We're going to learn how to do sharpening. Then we're either going to make a sheath from kydex or leather, and there's a whole realm of things that go on with that. And what we're going to do by the time we're done with that is we're going to say, hey, we took something that looked really complicated, and we figured out how to do it. And when you do that with young people enough, they develop that mindset. That's what I think is one of the main things that KnifeKits.com offers the average person in this audience. The average person in this audience is not going to be a full-time uh, knife maker. They're not even going to be a hobbyist that makes money. You know, there's, there's a lot of people like that in this audience, but that's not going to be the majority of you guys. The majority of you guys are people that just want to know how to do stuff and want how to teach your, your kids how to do stuff. Check out KnifeKits.com, and if you're not sure what to do, They have books and DVDs and helpful people that will answer the phone and help you make your selections. Check them out today, KnifeKits.com. And remember, benefits section of the MSB, discount provided by KnifeKits.com. All right. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, the main topic of today's show again. That is permaculture. And I titled this episode, A New Understanding of Permaculture. I probably should have called this podcast episode an accurate understanding of permaculture, but... You know, a new understanding of permaculture has a better ring to it for marketing purposes and things like that. This show was in part inspired by a video by my good friend Curtis Stone that was called What Permaculture Got Wrong. While I love Curtis, and I really, really do, there are few people in the world, period, let alone in agriculture, sustainability, and entrepreneurship, that I respect as much as Curtis Stone. I'm not even going to say that I respect more, which is what somebody would usually say there, because he's in the group at the highest level of people that I have respect for. But we could have called that video what Curtis doesn't understand about permaculture. And that is in no way a dig at Curtis. His opinion is based on seeing what people call permaculture and how those same people define it. And I see a huge problem here, and it comes down to conflating technique methods and tactics with overall strategy. 
Permaculture is not a technique, a method, or a tactic. Permaculture is a strategy. And more accurately, it's not even a strategy. Many people have tried to define permaculture over the years. I think what I've come up with for you today may be the most exact definition of what permaculture really is that anybody's come up with yet. I could be wrong, but here's my crack at it. Permaculture is an ethical design science used to create specific strategies for any given situation using appropriate methods and techniques for the purpose of specific goals. Now, I know that sounds kind of boring unless you're an engineer, but that's kind of the point. There's a lot of things that go wrong in permaculture. Permaculture is a systems thinking process. It is not simply a collection of techniques that are natural and safe ways to grow food. What I want to do today is examine how that simple understanding allows for permaculture to actually live up to all that it promises. So to start out, I want to, well, what does permaculture actually promise? And, and there's a whole slew of different, I guess, tribes within the permaculture world that think it's a, it promises something specific that they have a specific bent for. There are people that believe it, it provides the pathway to utopian socialism. And there are people that think it, it, it you know, has the pathway to utopian anarchism. Now, you talk about two groups of people pretty, pretty diametrically opposed there. But what permaculture actually promises is that with a full holistic understanding of the design science behind it, that you can address any problem before you in a way that meets with the prime directive in the three ethics. So now we have to go and do those. And, and I have actually been accused by people, because I'm big on let's get shit done, of not caring about the ethics of permaculture, which is, is one of the most idiotic statements that ever, anybody could ever make, that Jack Spirico is a screw-the-ethics guy. I'm the guy that always brings the ethics to the forefront whenever I talk about permaculture and get specific on what they mean while many others either twist them to their own agenda or try to just little lip service to them and put them on the shelf. And that's generally what people do. I don't do that. Because I don't think we can practice an ethical design science driven by the intent of the creators of this science, David Holgram and Bill Mollison, if we do not understand where they started from. Because since we are, are talking about a strategy-level thing, then we have to look to what are the restrictions on us. People like Jeff Lawton have said famously at this point, if a designer is good, the more restrictions upon the design, the more elegant the design. So when you have to design something and there's code enforcement in your way, there's a, a, an annoying neighbor in your way, there's a hill, a mountain, a complex component in your way of what you're trying to do. When you fall back and you get the full strategy in mind and then you assign the proper methods and then implement those with the right techniques, the design gets incredibly elegant if it's highly restricted. And that, that seems counterintuitive, but it's really not. Because while I prefer not to have too many restrictions in my life, and I prefer freedom, some restrictions are natural restrictions. A mountain is a natural restriction. 
You can yell at it. You can pass a bill. You can you can scream that it's unfair. You can shout for social justice. The mountain careth not. It is a mountain. It isn't going anywhere, right? It's going to be there. You're going to have to deal with it. A a climate is a restriction, right? And any climate restricts certain things. Zone six is great for a lot of things. Not so good for citrus. Just as one example, there are always going to be these restrictions. And if you give somebody a room that's nothing but four walls and tell them to design it, they get stuck. But if you say, okay, it's a living room, here's a doorway, this is where your dining room is, this is where your kitchen is, this is where your electrical outlets are, what you do is you put restrictions in front of them. And as soon as you place restrictions in front of them, while they might not be in love with them, pretty quick they can give you a, a, a reasonable layout for a living room. If you tell them it's a bedroom, this is where your master bathroom is, this is where your windows are, this is where your closet is, they can make a determination. Well, it is important for me, since I am a single guy, to have these things, or since we're a couple, to have those things. They're going to be laid out this way. We do or we do not want a TV. You see how it works. As soon as you put those restrictions up, the design begins to fall out. Well, the prime directive and the ethics are the only restrictions that permaculture places upon itself. And if we start there, we clear up a whole bunch of confusion, we get a whole bunch of stupidity out of the way, we don't end up clinging blindly to an ideology or our preconception of what something is supposed to be, and even though we will always bring some sort of our personal ideology into everything that we do, at least we'll know why we're doing what we're doing and we'll make the best decisions for the situation at hand. So, the prime directive of permaculture, and I think this is actually one of the most important statements ever made, ever, in anything, but specifically for permaculture because it is so broadly appealing. And it so flies in the face of the modern spoiled society that we have become. And the, the prime directive is the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for ourselves and for that of our children. Now, notice I didn't say to take responsibility for everybody and their children. Ourselves and our children. Now, some people will, will broaden the tent as to how they define the people that are their children. And some people will define the, 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 the you know, uh, open the tent to how they say ourselves are. But if you think ourselves is everybody in the whole world, you have broken one of the first rules, and that you have not set a realistic goal for yourself. You can only do so much. And permaculture is not about what other people do. Permaculture is about what you do and what the people you influence do. And it ends there. Now, it becomes a much bigger global movement because a lot of people doing a little bit adds up to a great deal. But in the end... When it comes to the prime directive, you can't suppose to speak for somebody else, do for somebody else. But you can say, I am a living, being, breathe, living, breathing being. I have certain needs. I have certain things that I create that are wastes. And I can take responsibility for myself. Straight out of the gate, I can say, I can assess my needs and figure out how to put stuff in place to meet them. And then if I procreate... Or if I have any people that I take on as dependents, in any way, shape, or form, I can see to their needs, 
And because in general, parents do not outlive their children and grandchildren. There's tragic things that break that. But in general, if I do that, I must not look only to today and tomorrow, but the future beyond my own life. It's a really simple but very powerful thing. And it's one of the reasons that people that have families tend to think more about the future than those that don't. Not that if you don't have a family, you're bad. Not that you don't think about the future. But just a natural thing, when you look at someone, like I have my grandson who's seven years old and my granddaughter who's like two. And I look at those two children and I realize they will be here. You know, unless something horrible happens, they will be here after I am dead and gone. And I have some level of responsibility to make sure that I'm doing what I can so that the what I leave behind to them is something valuable. And I don't damage the things that I want to leave behind for them. And I don't ruin things that they could use to do better with. And that's the prime directive. We have to start there. Now, that sounds great, but if you do not place ethics in that umbrella, what you end up creating is a situation that can actually become very dangerous. If I am only supposed to worry about myself and my children, and I really am when it comes to what I'm trying to produce results for, then if I don't marry that to ethics, what can and often will happen in a society that thinks this way is it will be done at the expense of others. Well, if, if I can go over there and kill those people and take their stuff and I have enough stuff to leave to my heirs and their heirs and their heirs and heirs, then everybody's going to be okay now, then pillaging seems like a good idea. You don't think the societies that were built on pillage were concerned about themselves and their children? You, yeah, I mean, if we can extract from the earth in a way that's harmful to the earth, but it's not enough to kill everybody, well, that's okay. Hey, man, I'm only worried about the next couple hundred, three hundred years even, let's say. I, You know, the people 300 years from now have better technology. They can figure out what to do going down the road. That gets to be a very dangerous way of thinking. So we get the three ethics. And to understand the, the genius of these ethics as restrictions on the discipline, on the design, You have to understand where Holdrum and Mollison got them. They didn't sit down and say, hey, let's just make up, because three is a good number and people remember three, these three ethics, and we'll pull them out of our ass that we think people should do. They actually researched dozens, if not hundreds, of indigenous societies of people. People that lived off the land and cared for their children and cared for each other and were able to live without all the benefits of modern technology and be successful civilizations, successful tribal societies. And they said, what are the, what are the common things these people all believed, even though some of them lived in the, what we call today the outback of Australia, and some of them lived in what would be called today the central United States, and some of them lived near the tip of South America, and some of them lived in the middle of the African continent. As diverse as those places are, and as diverse as those people were, and as diverse as their religions were, and their shamanic traditions, etc., what were, what were their commonalities that they all had? And they were this, <clears throat> care of the earth, care of people, and return of surplus. And the other way to see the third ethic is putting limits on population and consumption. The American Native Americans didn't, or the American Native, the Native Americans didn't go out and slaughter buffalo. They took as much as they needed. 
They might even take some surplus that they would reinvest in their tribe. But they didn't, they didn't overhunt. And because they lived in balance, there was a population control amongst themselves. They didn't have to say, you can only have three kids. By living that way, they naturally set their population to what was acceptable. They didn't think, you know, a million people can live in this little place sustainably because they, they knew they couldn't. And they even built, you know, some of these primitive peoples built some pretty impressive civilizations that were remarkably sustainable considering they had no petroleum products, they had no internal combustion engine. You know, we're not even talking about the amazing capabilities of, let's say, ancient Rome. We're talking about very primitive technologies that built up societies of hundreds or even, in some cases, hundreds of thousands to even millions of people. They weren't perfect people, and their systems weren't perfect, but they, they came from a standpoint of if we overtake what we're allowed to have, if we damage these systems, they won't be here for us. They also believed in care of people. That you, you had to take care of at least your tribe. You had to think about what you did and not hurt others. This even took, it, it went into the place, like these ancient tribal societies did have warfare. It was very short-lived. Because when sending troops is not a picture on TV, but the men in your village, and some don't come back even when they win, your appetite for war diminishes. So in anything from war mitigating the bad to day-to-day -day life, just simply saying, we don't do these things because it harms other people. And, and, and even in preventing conflict, if we harm this group of people over here, then they'll come harm us. So there was a self-preservation to that ethic, as well as simply just a, a, a positivity to that ethic. And then the last one that is the one that gets twisted and torn up by those with the leftist politic that come into permaculture. Because I actually don't have a problem with a lot of leftist ideas and ideals, so long as you don't try to use the force of the state to make them happen. right? Um, but when you try to take an ideal like any political ideal and apply it to a system that was designed as a strategy that implemented methods and techniques to solve problems, and you want to force an ideal, it just messes it up. So they got the idea to, re to change the, the original ethic, which is return of surplus to redistribution of surplus. The return of surplus means exactly what it says. You cannot change it. The redistribution of surplus is the problem in natural systems. A redistribution of surplus is what was done by the American buffalo hunters who wiped out over 50 million buffalo and took their meat and their hides and redistributed it elsewhere. A return of surplus was the Native American that used everything that they could and that which they could not use rotted to the ground and was returned to the ground. If we look at the Edo period in Japan, the concept that we took something like straw and made shoes out of it and fixed the shoes as many times as possible when the shoes were not fixable anymore. The shoes went on a compost pile and then the compost went on the garden. That's a return of surplus. If I grow a crop like amaranth, the grain is the yield, the true yield that has some sort of monetary or food value. But the plant itself is huge. Some of that plant maybe can be fed to livestock, but a lot of that plant is really mostly carbon. And when it is processed and goes back to the ground, that's a return of surplus. And that is what ancient societies believed. 
that we were to do the best we could to not harm the earth because it's all we had, to not harm, harm others because it was the right thing, and when we did, it always led to bad things. And to take that which is in excess and reinvest it into our society, into our children, into our land. So, the, I, the reason I spent so much time on that, and the reason that that is so important, is if you don't start there, you have a very difficult time explaining what permaculture is. Because then you say, well... Aquaponics is aquaponics and permaculture is permaculture and they're competing with each other. Where a, an enlightened permaculturist would say, as long as we can do aquaponics without hurting the earth, without hurting people, and we take our surplus produced and return it to the end of the first two, the care of people and the care of the earth, then it's, then it's permaculture. Do you see how simple that becomes then? So then permaculture, the, the, the techniques and the tactics and the methods so long as they can be designed to meet the ethics, everything is permaculture. Permaculture is the way that we think to design the solution to the problem at hand. Everything else is just the means by which we get there. And it really is that simple. And the way politics screws everything up is then we start taking our personal ideology and wanting to apply it in the judgment of others, and when they don't meet what we want, we want to use some sort of a law to create a restriction that's artificial to force them into compliance with that which we want. And that doesn't matter if you're coming from the right or the left. Within permaculture, it's absolutely the case that it is generally the left-leaning, socialist-type ideologies that get used that way, but it's completely possible for right-leaning ideologies to do the same thing. What we're supposed to be worried about is what? Taking responsibility for ourselves and that of our children and adherence to three common sense ethics that are so universal that when properly explained, very few people in the world, no matter what their ideology is, object to them. I can sit down with a communist, a socialist, a fascist, right? as long as it's an economic fascist, a statist of any stripe, an anarchist, a libertarian, I don't care who it is, as long as they're not a flat-out something like a Nazi. Because Nazi and fascists get tied together, and they're different. You live in a fascist country economically. We will not go into that today, okay? But there's a lot of people that make a lot of apologies and, and, and why it's okay, and why it's a good thing. Well, we should have corporate welfare, for instance, okay? Everybody on the right is always worried about welfare. Go out and check out how much money we spend on welfare for, for, for these, these uh, people that are like, you call them welfare mamas. And I'm not saying we should. I'm just saying go look at how much money we give them and then go look at the number for corporate welfare. And if you're concerned about either without the other, you're not really concerned. You just, you're just following and chasing an ideology. And that's fine in politics. But when we have a system that's designed to, to create ethical designs to solve problems and you start trying to drag your politic into it, it's really easy to see how that messes things up. Because then we're off on things that don't solve the problem, and then we're creating divisions amongst people that would otherwise be natural allies. Because again, I could set down any group of people, unless you're talking about psychopaths and murderers, and say, here's the ethics, here's the prime directive. How do you feel about that? Well, I think that's a good thing. That's why they use them. All right. 
So now we have to understand, now that we have a starting point, strategy, method, technique, and how these lead to good design. A strategy is the overriding way that we address the problem, and it requires defining the problem and defining the goals at the same time. So a strategy would be, if we're going into, let's say, and I'm going to use martial arts for this, it's really easy to understand. If I'm a martial artist, and I'm about to go compete in a tournament, my overriding strategy is win. Win the tournament. Be the champion of my division. My more, you know, open-minded strategy might be to do as well as I can. The methods that I will use are varied as we kind of peel the onion that is the method onion. Because if I am a martial artist and I'm competing in a typical karate type tournament that is a three point you know match winner, then if I take Taekwondo, that is in many ways a method. Okay, uh, if I take you know Lucido Joe or I take uh, Chun Ru or whatever. Any of those disciplines, American karate, Kempo, doesn't matter. All those are also, you know, an assemblage of methods. And then within them are methods that are unique to and common to each discipline. A front punch, a round kick, a front kick, a side kick, a block, a high block, a low block, an inward block, an outward block, whatever it is. Those are all methods. The technique is how well I execute those methods at the right time in the right place to achieve the strategy of winning or the strategy of not losing or the strategy of advancing further than I did the last time. Whatever I've said is my overriding strategy. And when you put those three together, it leads to good design. So in permaculture, what we're looking to do then is to start out first with the strategy And so we have to define the goals to do that. So there's a big difference in designing a system if the strategy is I want a somewhat smallish backyard permaculture system so that I have food and beauty in my backyard uh, versus I have a strategy to develop 40 acres of farmland into a system that produces enough income for me to live off of full time. Now, you notice I didn't say something like, I want to design 40 acres into a rotationally grazing-based system on a savanna food forest architecture like Mark Shepard did at New Forest Farm. Okay? Because now all of a sudden, we've jumped. We've jumped from the strategic defining of the goal to the methods and techniques and tactics that we're going to use to get there. We first define that. And the reason we have to do that is let's say I do want to build a farm of 40 or 100 acres. I think Mark's is 130 acres, okay? So somewhere in that neighborhood of 1 to 200 acres. I do want to do that. Well, Mark lives in Wisconsin. Mark's soil was primarily red clay. Mark actually knew how to farm before he started. Mark had the markets that he had in that area to do things. Mark had fairly sophisticated knowledge of real estate when he went into farming. Mark was much younger than he is now. It's part of why the damn thing's so beautiful, because it's had time to mature 
and he was able to work in the summer 80-hour weeks. Are all those things true about you? And odds are, most of them aren't. Most of them are unique to him. So his strategy needed to be designed to his goals with his market realities. You might want to do the same thing, but you're in Florida or California or Texas. Trust me, all three of them are different. There might be some commonalities in certain regions of all three and some big differences in regions of all three, but they're all different. Even if you had an identical climate, which you don't, you have different market realities in the local market around you. And what, what people want, what people will buy. And a lot of those things go straight out the window as soon as you're designing a half of an acre, because you can fully irrigate and mulch half an acre, and you can pretty much be done with smart design and, and, and lay down a design for that if you're really clear on what you want in a day. And it's actually pretty hard to fail. And that's, see, you see how different things get based on the strategy. And if we jump to the method or the technique before the strategy is fully understood, then we get all out of whack. So with that in mind, I want to talk about how many critics get it right and wrong at the same time. In Curtis's video, for instance, one of the things that he picked on was swales. And he was talking about how, in some instances, swales get in the way because you want to use equipment to harvest, and now there's a swale in the way. Well, the swale properly implemented would not only not be in the way, it may actually be part of your access. But I'm sure he's seen it done poorly. Or the swales are put in places where you actually already have too much water. Well, if the swale was probably properly implemented, we could actually use the swale to move the water from where there is too much of it to where there's not enough of it, or at least to mitigate the overriding problem in the first place by maybe diverting it in with another method into a pond. But does that fit the strategy? And what Curtis often was looking at in his video is a place where a person applied a swale as a method with poor technique without having it match the strategy of the system as a whole. Because that strategy was improperly defined in the first place. And the person doing it is probably like, I'm a permaculturist, I have a PDC, I did this and I did that, and, da, da, da. and this is what permaculture really is. So the critic saying, this is folly, this is a mistake, this is not how to build a profitable system, this is ugly, it is, they're completely right. But that's not a criticism of permaculture, that's the wrong method and shitty technique. If you went and watched a karate tournament and a guy came up from Taekwondo and let's just say he really sucked, you wouldn't say Taekwondo sucks. You said the guy, the guy sucked at Taekwondo. Now you might not even believe that Taekwondo is the best martial art. Personally, I don't either. But I don't think it sucks. I don't think it doesn't have any merit at all. I don't think it's not applicable in a variety of situations. Likewise, if you watch somebody in a karate art do a kata, especially a very timed, slow, deliberate, hard-style kata, you would only judge that martial art on that kata if you thought that kata was that martial art, rather than all the other things that go with it. 
with a full understanding of this is a way for the student to develop and demonstrate the methods they've been taught and the technique that they've acquired in implementing those methods so the teacher can determine what the student needs to work on and whether or not the student is ready to progress to the next level. That's the purpose of that kata. It's a mental and physical exercise designed to reinforce the methods they were taught and the technique by which to deliver them so they can be evaluated and so that the student can perfect his art. That's what a kata is. So we don't judge the martial art on the kata because nobody fights that way. That guy that executes a perfect kata, climbs into a ring to fight in full contact BKA karate, you don't see anything that looks like a kata. But the methods are there and the techniques are there. They're just used differently because the situation is dramatically different. It is not your sensei evaluating your, your forward kick. It is some guy trying to kick you in the teeth. And you need to kick him in the teeth first and not get hit while you're doing it. This is where the critics get it right and wrong. You're judging the performance of the student rather than the validity of the craft. And to understand that, we need to understand what appropriate technology means. This is something I hear bantered around in the permaculture world all the way. And, and part of it, part of the problem we have in communicating with people who are not permaculturists is many of us don't know what the hell we're talking about. We really don't. People say appropriate technology. That means you know, not using machinery so that you can give people jobs. That is that, and I've heard that. I've heard that more than once. You have no idea what you're talking about. Appropriate technology means we look at the situation as a whole and say, what is the appropriate technology for the situation? I know that's common sense, but again, you drag the body politic into it and everything goes wrong. Appropriate technology is not just a technology, i.e. a, uh, a comma, uh, well, I'm sorry, too much martial arts, right? a scythe versus a combine. And which one is the appropriate technology? You know, those are what we think of when we think of technologies. Solar panels would be something that really resonates with people as a technology. If we took solar panels, batteries, and timers and created an irrigation system that used those sustainable energy systems to irrigate a field, we would say that's a technology. And we would be right. But it's actually an assemblage of technologies because irrigation itself is a technology. A swale itself is a technology. An excavator that we dig the swale with, that excavator itself is a piece of technology, but it creates another piece of technology known as a swale that we could also create with a shovel or a backhoe or a bulldozer or a, a, a scraper. You, st you start to get it now. Technology is anything that is used by humans to accomplish a goal. A stick is technology. When a monkey picks up a stick and jams it inside a termite mound and he knows the termites will get on top of it and he pulls the stick out and he eats it, that's a technology. It's called simple tools. An inclined plane that we can push something up and move greater weight than we have before is a technology. An inclined plane wrapped helically around uh, a center is a technology. We call it a screw. A nail is a technology. A hammer is a technology. Gardening is a technology. Seed saving is a technology. So appropriate technology 
means the proper application of whatever's being applied for the system at a whole and the task at hand. An appropriate technology could be ducking so you don't get hit by somebody, or an appropriate technology might be punching somebody in the head so they don't try to hit you again. It's situationally dependent. And when we confuse what that means, and the minute we bring politics into it, everything goes wrong. Because it's actually a very cut and dry question. This is the overall strategy. This is the design component that we're working on now. Therefore, this is the problem that we're trying to solve. What is the best way when these chestnut trees are 10 years old and dropping lots of nuts to harvest those nuts from the ground so that we lose the minimum amount possible? If we start getting into questions about, well, what's a fair wage to pay somebody doing that job? <sighs> well, I think the market can determine that. And we might even want to know what a prevailing wage is for that task to be accomplished. Will there be a human component available that wants to do it? Where do you live? What do people do for yeah, Well, we should be paying people 15 bucks an hour to pick up chestnuts. I don't know whether we should or should not. But is there anybody that would show up if we offered it? And by the way, if we did that, would we lose so much money that we would lose our farm and not make a profit on the chestnuts? See, the appropriate technology is based on what's available to us, what works best, and does it care for the earth, care for people, and is it, is it either returning a surplus or at least not, a, not preventing the return of surplus. And then it's a very easy thing to do. Now, I want to talk about, to make this concrete, some common methods in permaculture and how through improper technique they get used wrong. And, and why this creates this external criticism and internal problems. And, and things like, well, this doesn't work. No, you did it wrong. Or you applied it incorrectly. Or you did it in the wrong climate. Or for the climate you're in, if you wanted to do that, here was how to do it differently. Okay, Let's talk about mulching. Let's talk about the uh, criticisms that, that Curtis had, that you know, mulching could actually become a place where pests live and things like that. Well, do you live in a place where that's likely to be? Do you live in a place with lots of slugs? If you use wood mulch in a place that gets lots of rain and has lots of slugs and snails, you're probably going to create a slug and snail infestation. If you're in a desert climate and you're using drip irrigation with mulching, it's probably going to work well. Let's look at, with mulching in particular, how a method becomes, in the minds of people, a strategy. Back to Eden Gardening. Curtis even mentioned that in his video. You know, and people watch this and they just think you throw mulch on the ground and everything gets better. Well, how big of an area do you have to mulch? What access do you have to mulch? What type of mulch do you have available? What are you growing? Is it easier, instead of applying an external mulch, to use a natural covering like Masanuba Fukuoka, where his primary mulch was whatever we harvested, the waste was returned to surplus. If we harvested rice, the straw went straight to the ground. Right before we did that, we threw barley down, and the rice straw went on top of the barley, and the barley just grew in the second crop. And then when the barley was harvested, the rice was thrown down, and then the rice, you see what I mean? Like, why would I bring in a mulch in that situation? And in many other situations with Masanuba's strategy, a ground cover might have consisted mostly of white clover. It was a living mulch. 
Or are you doing what Curtis is doing in spin farming? He says, well, I don't mulch. I use weed blockers. Yeah, Curtis, your weed blocker is a form of mulch. It's a synthetic mulch. So you're using the right technique because you've defined your strategy. High-intensive growing of profitable vegetables to make a small farm profitable. So while criticizing mulching, you're using mulching without realizing that's what you're doing because you've equated mulching with what people that think they're doing permaculture told you they thought mulching was. See? Real simple. Swales. This is another example of a technique that's often misapplied, misunderstood, and therefore leads to internal and external criticism. I'm going to put in swales. Why? Number one thing I get from people, I want to do swales. Why? Well, it's permaculture. No, it's a technique. It's a method. And you better have the right technique when you use the method or you're going to screw it up. Where do you live? Well, I live here. Hmm, that's a pretty temperate climate. What are your soils like? Oh, they're deep and great. Hmm. You want to put it in ponds? Really don't have room, can't do it, whatever. So you don't want to put it in ponds? No. What's it like now? Well, it's mostly open. How do things grow? Really well. Well, we might use swells, but you've started there and you really don't have an answer to why. So even if it would make sense to use them in your situation, you're probably going to screw it up. I've seen people put in swales, and then that swale literally prevents the access of equipment in. And if we would have just ended it a little shorter, we could have put a drive-through in much easier. So we, this is one of the most common ones because we see it so much. It's such a visual thing. And, and to be fair, what people want to take away from these instructionals is, well, what can I go do? And there's a place for that. There's a place where people say, sure, I'm going to go try. Okay, but there's a big difference between an error and a type 1 error. And a swale has a real easy way of going straight to a type 1 error. It's kind of hard to put it back. You can, but it's really hard. And you got a lot invested in it by the time you've planted the berm and whatever. And it's, it's difficult to say, yeah, I, it would have been better to do something else. So we really got to know why we're doing it. Are we doing it to spread water? infiltrate water, or in some instances, for instance what Ben Falk's doing, he had certain areas that were getting too wet. And by building a high berm swale, it actually moved the trees and the shrubbery high enough that the roots didn't get too wet, even though the swale was still infiltrating water. Because it was on enough of, a, of, a, of an elevation uh, slope that the water actually moved somewhat quickly through that structure. Are we, are we installing the swale mainly as a footpath? If we have a fairly steep uh, slope, small swales can do a lot without really holding a lot of water because now we can walk along and we can take care of the plants. But if we in implement this improperly, it leads to problems. So the outside viewer of permaculture doesn't really understand it, sees swales done improperly, says, look at all these problems. And then the internal person who just grabbed onto the idea and ran away with it, <laughs> you know, they've created a problem for themselves, and they say this doesn't work. And they also have maybe unrealistic expectations. Well, uh, this is supposed to eliminate irrigation. No, it's supposed to mitigate the need for irrigation. How much natural precipitation do you have? You know, these are all important questions. The greening the desert uh, first uh, video that Jeff did that made swales so popular in the minds of people, they used continuous drip irrigation. 
They put in the swales. It did harvest every speck of water that ever fell, but they ran drip irrigation lines, and they had a dripper to every tree. Kind of an important thing there. Hugaculture. Hugaculture is one of the greatest things that ever happened in the world uh, of permaculture and one of the worst. Um, people think you can just build a big mound and throw wood in the middle of it and it's going to do great. I won't go deep into this one. I'll just say that there's a lot of hugaculture mounds that are miserable failures, and there's a lot that are resounding successes. But you, if you didn't understand what the purpose was, what's the purpose of a hugaculture bed in, in the in the application of the strategy developed by Sepp Holzer, who is kind of the guy with hugaculture? It's it's making massive amounts of good soil and compost and doing something productive with it in the meantime. And he could say whatever he wants about it working anywhere in the world. It is best suited for cool, temperate to cold, temperate climates with lots of moisture. Works really good there. Doesn't mean it can't work in a desert scenario. It does when properly done. It also requires a lot more maintenance than I think people expect it to. And if you're not prepared to do that maintenance, it's a terrible idea because it becomes either a weed mound or everything dies and it just becomes a big, big dirt dust mound. So we have to think about that. Or people go and they build a regular garden that they bury wood under. They call it hugaculture. I understand why you do. And, and I kind of did myself at one point. But I refer to it now as wood core gardening because it's a more accurate description. It does a lot of good. But it is not in of itself a silver bullet. And it is often improperly applied. Rotational grazing. Well, rotational grazing is one of those things. It almost works anywhere. However, we have to think about the livestock, the plant life that's there, and the frequency of rotation and the size of the paddocks and things like that. And if we don't get that technique right, the method can be a disaster. Food forestry. This is one of the most misunderstood ones because when you see a beautiful food forest, you want one. And therefore, we begin to think that, well, you know, the people that are out growing large amounts of food should be doing food forestry. We're right and we're wrong. We think that food forest that that person's growing should look like the food forest that some guy has on a half acre in his backyard in Florida. They're going to be very different. Stefan Sobakayak that did the Miracle Orchard video um, and, and has just amazing orchard up in Canada. Most people look at that and say, that's an orchard. I see a food forest. I see a savanna-style food forest where the opening glades are managed primarily with rotational grazing in the form of chickens. That's what it is. He just happens to have his forest edges as straight lines. And his mulch is primarily synthetic mulch. And his irrigation method is primarily drip irrigation. But... His systems are incredibly diverse with insects and wildlife, and there's riparian borders. And, I mean, it is a savanna-style food forest. It just has to be maintained at a scale that's scaled down because it's pruned so it can be manually harvested by people. But it is a food forest. My food forest looks like a forest. And I'd like for it to look more like a forest. Mark Shepard's system is... Basically, Stefan Sobakayak's system on a much bigger scale. So he's doing rotational grazing between alleys, and the alleys that are now being used to graze 
animals used to grow things like zucchini until he got enough production off of the perennial system to move over to grazing. And he didn't need all that zucchini and all that asparagus anymore to pay the bills because now the chestnuts and the apples and the plums were producing. And now we could manage the savanna plain, the glades in between, with cattle and, and, and chickens and turkeys and goats or whatever he's using. Pigs. Pigs and cattle are his mainstay. And it, I mean, it, it really is a great technique, food forestry, especially when combined with other techniques like rotational grazing. I should say methods there to be accurate, right? I'm asking you to be accurate. I should be accurate. So food forestry is a great method when used, implemented with the proper technique and combined with other methods properly executed with the properly te proper technique like rotational grazing, they work really well. But when any of these methods are improperly applied, they create a mess. Just like if you were in a karate match with somebody and they threw a front punch and you tried to block it with your face. You would be successful in what you tried to do, but it wouldn't work out. And that's what I think many people end up doing. They're trying to block a punch with their face. Let's talk about some common myths about permaculture that aggravate this. There's no annual production in permaculture. How are you going to feed people? Per perennials only can do so much. Who the hell told you that there was no annual production in permaculture? If you look at the PRI in Australia, a massive piece of the land is an annual garden system. Does it, does it care for people, care for the earth, return surplus, and does it afford you the ability to, to take responsibility for yourself and that, your that of your children? Yes, then it can be permaculture. Doesn't even have to be growing food. Could be how to run a business. Could be how to solve an economic problem. That's why we had to start there. So there is a, annual gardens are part of permaculture systems. Another belief is there's no real pests or weed problems. They don't really exist. You're just doing it wrong if you have that. Much of what we do in permaculture can mitigate those things, but there will always be weeds and there will always be pests. It is advantageous within permaculture to stop thinking of something as a weed and start thinking of it as, it a, as a consequence to the ecosystem that we have. The same thing with a pest. But there's points where we have to admit, okay, this is a problem. And I can either use an appropriate technology to mitigate or deal with this problem, or I can, I can design the problem away. If my problem is that in my climate, um, tomato blight is just a huge problem, and no matter what I do to my soil, I can't seem to get this blight problem to go away, then I can grow things other than tomatoes. Or I can start implementing a technique that isolates soil that's newly created that, is, that does not yet have the problem of blight, and I can grow a small amount of tomatoes in that. Or I can take a variety of tomato that's more blight resistant. There's all types of things I can do about that. But if I just ignore that that's an issue, in a place where I have that issue, I'm going to have problems. And it's either going to be a very low yield of tomatoes that doesn't really matter because it's a backyard garden, And that's not a big deal. But if I'm trying to build a profitable system to pay bills, and I'm trying to pay bills with tomatoes in a blight-ridden area, and I, I refuse to go to a blight-resistant hybrid because I think somehow that's not permaculture because I have to save my own seeds, well, then I'm going to have a problem. I'm going to have a pest problem, a weed problem, etc. 
there are problems. And there are appropriate technologies. And one of Curtis's points in his video was that there there's a certain insect problem. And by applying these low-net tunnels, they kept the insects off the plants. And without that, they would have been devoured. Guess what? Unless those, those, those low tunnels were made out of, I don't know, iridium or something, or uh, child slave labor that was beaten with whips while they fabricated and was used to make them or something like that, so you're no knowingly supporting something like that, there's nothing not permaculture about a low tunnel. There's nothing not permaculture about a low tunnel anymore. There's anything not permaculture about a greenhouse. We have entire concepts called the permaculture greenhouse. It's the appropriate use of technology to deal with a pest. Another one I hear is permaculture is only good for backyards. Then how do you explain what Mark Shepard does? And I'll leave it at that. You can't do mechanized harvest and do permaculture. How do you explain what Mark Shepard does? I'll leave it at that. We designed a system for Alcoa. They, they kind of like did the beginning of it and they just stopped. They didn't actually go forward with it. But we designed a system so when all the trees were planted... In the space between the swales, we were going to be growing things like aronia and elderberry that were designed so they could be harvested with a straddle harvester. Tell me it's not permaculture. You don't get to decide. It's the appropriate use of technology for the scale on which the, the project would be done. We were talking thousands of acres. This is actually really easy to understand, but we make it complicated with our preconceived ideas. Some of permaculture's biggest pitfalls, pitfalls, pitfalls. Right? Remember the game Pitfall? The guy fell in the pit. Right? This is obsession with a method. I've kind of covered that, so I won't go too long on it. But when we get obsessed with a method, I don't care what it is, we're gonna have problems. When you are obsessed with the swale, you're going to have problems because you're gonna put a swale where it doesn't belong. If you're obsessed with mulching because you watched Back to Eden and because it fit with your religious ideology and therefore it must be good and this old man did it and his vegetables grew and you're trying to do something in a different climate or a different situation where that method is not really the best idea, you're going to make mistakes with it. Or you're going to spend too much money. You could have done the same thing for less if you become obsessed with, well, it has to be wood mulch. Has to be, if you live somewhere where wood mulch is easy to procure for a cheap amount of money like I do, well, hell yeah, you want to use it. If you live somewhere where you have to truck it in from a thousand miles away, it doesn't make sense. And you would understand that immediately if you weren't obsessed with the method. And I think that's the, I put it first because it's the biggest thing that causes problems. I have to have an herb spiral. I think most herb spirals are just totally inappropriate use of technology, to be blunt. Just a, it's totally a bad idea. Most of them turn very quickly into weed spirals. So I'm not huge on this idea of everybody having an herb spiral. If you want one, fine. And for some places and some implementations, they make a lot of sense. They're really good in Mediterranean climates. But what they're best for is explaining the concept of microclimates. Not so that we can all go create an herb spiral, so that we can say, oh, the herb spiral taught me that the top south-facing portion of the spiral would be the hottest and driest. This thing over here is a lot like that. It's going to always be hot and dry. We need to plant things that do well with hot and dry, or we need to do things to mitigate the hot and dry, 
or we need to do both. That's the purpose of the herb spiral, which is a method. And it's a much better teaching method than it is an implementation method. It can be done, but it better be done with perfect technique to give you what you really want. And that's what it's really for, though, is for teaching. So you can't get obsessed with a method. The next big pitfall, and I would say it is probably the number two biggest one, and for people that want to make a living, it's the biggest one, unrealistic goals. People come away with the idea, I'm going to go make $100,000 or $50,000 or whatever on this. They've never even built a financial model for it. You know how I feel about financial models. But, you know, if your goal is to have high production of corn and you have a piece of land like I do, you're not going to do it. Now, next year I'm going to grow some corn to show what aquaponics can do. Corn aquaponics is great. You'll just wait, you'll see. But I'm not going to try to make money on it. I'm not going to try to make a living on it. And unless, even with doing it for just some personal consumption in a small amount, unless we do it right, time it right, and make it part of a succession of planting, it's a money loser for me. I could have done something with that space that would have been better for my family and my home unless I time it just right and do it just right. We also want to experiment with some things that I won't talk about yet. But my realistic goal is I want to grow a one or two four-by-four four beds of corn in deep wicking beds that are successed out of winter planting with short-term corn that successes into summer plantings, right? That's a goal. I want to grow enough corn to make a living with a roadside stand on a piece of land with four inches of soil on top of slab where the temperature this week is going to be over 107 degrees. That's an unrealistic goal. I have no experience in farming whatsoever, but I want to do pastured poultry this year and make $50,000. That's probably an unrealistic goal. Grossing 50000 in that scenario is probably an unrealistic goal. I want to process through this year 50 or 100 chickens. I want to take half of them for myself, give half of them away, learn the numbers, learn the technique, and determine whether this is right as a long-term strategy and how far up I can scale it. That's a realistic goal. It's also exactly what Joel Salatin says to do in Pastured Poultry Profits. Why? Because he built a business that works and he knows what a beginning realistic goal for that is. That's why. Unrealistic goals are horrible pitfalls. Not just in permaculture, in everything. That doesn't mean shoot for the stars, but if you want to get to the stars... Well, the first thing to do is get off the ground and then get high and then get to the edge of the atmosphere and then get out of the edge of the atmosphere and then get to the moon and then get to the outer planets and then get to the Oort cloud and then get beyond the solar system and then get to the stars. So it's fine to have that star's goal as an end goal, as an overriding strategy. But you better have realistic goals and realistic expectations as the bridge to get there, as the picket fence. You got to you know, put a picket fence in. We put in a post. We put in another post. We put in a panel. We need another post. We have to have those posts all the way that go where that fence is supposed to go. And if we don't do that, all we have is a bunch of fence panels laying on the ground. 
right? Simple. Lack of experience. And that's not in of itself the problem, but it's equating knowledge with skill. When you don't have any experience, but you know what's supposed to be done, it's very easy to believe that you're going to be able to do it. It leads to the unrealistic goals we just talked about. Knowledge applied over time develops skill. And we go out and we judge permaculture on people that have almost no experience at all. They're in their first or second year. They're not going to do well. Especially when they're trying to do ten things instead of one or two and get really good at them first. And then we judge ourselves harshly when we do that to ourselves. And then the last one, and it's come up several times here, but attachment to an ideology. I, I, I'll tell you where Curtis and I completely agree. On some levels when it comes especially to being profitable, put your ideology in your back pocket. I didn't say throw it in the trash can. So put it in your back pocket. I care about my back pocket. Okay? Until I got the Ridge Wallet, that's where I kept my money and my wallet and my credit cards and my ID. Okay? Put it in your front pocket if you want to, but put it in your pocket. Again, you care about what's in your pocket. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter. But, but we can't let the ideology be what dictates the design. We use the design until it runs up against our personal ideology, and then we figure out how to resolve the conflict. And one is science, method, and reality-driven, and the other one is driven by religious fervor, even when it's not a religion, because it's all got the hallmarks of a religion. Any politic... I'm a liberal, I'm a conservative, I'm a constitutionalist, I'm an originalist, I'm an objectivist. Any of that shit has the same hallmarks a religion does. Some of it might be a lot more logical than most religions. It still does the same thing. I am led by. The proper use of an ideology is the same thing that we started out with the ethics and the prime directive. These are the things I won't break or violate. Now let me go figure out how to do shit. Let me just take that ideology, that because it's, since it's core to who I am, I'm not going to violate it. And when I'm working something out, instead of saying, how do I do this without screwing up my ideology? How do I do this? They, okay, wait a minute. This thing here, this thing here is in conflict with who I am and what I believe. Okay, great. Now we worry about that one thing and how do we, how do we deal with it? How do we offset it? How do we mitigate it? Does it make us take three steps backwards and figure our way around it? But we don't get caught up in it before we've even started. We're well down the path. All we got to do is fix this one thing. That's easy. It, what I'm talking about is instead of trying to build a car, there's a car there, and all you're trying to do is figure out, well, why won't it start? We'll check the battery. Battery's good. Okay. Check the starter. Starter's good. Well, now we know what the problem is. You don't believe I me. Mean, somewhere between the battery and the starter, signal's not getting there. Could be the ignition, could be a switch, could be a bad wire. Who knows? But if we know the battery's good and the starter's good, and we don't have a car that's like turning over and not starting, we have a car that the starter won't turn, then we know somehow the energy's not getting from the battery to the starter. Now it's easy to fix. If it's turning over and it won't start, the engine is more complex and there's more things to look for, but there's still a process that we'll run through. 
were the most common reasons an engine won't start. Start out with, is there gas in it? Yeah, that's the number one problem. Cabling, you know? The number one reason that I, when I was in data cabling and computer services and stuff like that, we get somebody, you know, uh, I, I can't connect to the network. Number one thing that was wrong? Computer cable was unplugged. Well, I never unplugged it. Yeah, somebody came in here last night and vacuumed. They got under there and he had a bunch of crap and they were trying to do a good job and they pulled it out and they figured they were going to put it back in and they forgot to. I don't know. One way or another, your cable's unplugged. And it's almost like they were let down by it. Like, click, okay, there you go, connect. But you start with that most common problem and you progress forward. That's troubleshooting. That's what we do in permaculture for doing it right. We start designing it. When we get to there is a problem, we say, how do other people commonly solve this problem? And does that usually work? And does that fit with my ideology and my climate and my situation and my resources and my budget? And if it does, then we proceed with that. If it doesn't, then we figure out our way around it. But when we lead with the ideology, we will always try to make something into something that it isn't. Some of the most devout religious people I know are also scientists. But if they're doing a scientific experiment or study, they don't drag their religion into the science. If there's a question at some point that's ethical or moral, they deal with that. And hopefully they make the right decision for themselves and the right decision for other people. But they separate the two worlds. That's what I'm saying. Next, I want to talk about the key. Well, so we define a lot of the problem here. What are the keys to success? Number one, start with realistic goals. I mean, take the problem and go to the opposite of the problem. So if unrealistic goals are a problem, start with realistic goals and define the end game. Because that lets you be realistic with your goals. My end goal is this. Okay? Getting there in one year, is that realistic? No. What can I do that leads in that direction that can be done in one year? I think this. Okay, let's break that down further. What am I going to do in the next 60 days? And Okay, that's a realistic goal. We can really kind of time budget that. We might even get a little nerdy and Gantt charted or something like that. So we, we set that up, and then we start proceeding in that direction. And then we're either going to meet that goal or fail. If we fail, we're going to ask why we failed. Did we get lazy? Did something come up? Is it, was it unrealistic? Okay, now we can adjust it. And all of a sudden, the one-year, two-year, three-year goals start to come into focus as to what's reasonable. Because we started with a little piece But that little piece at least led in the right direction. They say the journey of a, of, a, of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Okay, I'll buy that. I think it's a really great proverb. I really do. But if the destination is to the north and the first step is to the south, the journey of a thousand miles just became a thousand miles in one step. And the more steps we take to the south when we're supposed to be going to the north, the longer the journey becomes. So we need to define where we are and where we want to go to and that set realistic goals that lead us in that direction. And over time, we will make mistakes, but since we're doing little bits at a time, they won't be major mistakes. And that means we'll adapt and we'll fix them. And as you've started to build enough stuff, the one point where you know you've done something wrong and you really need to stop pursuing the end goal and go back and fix shit, If you're spending more time correcting problems in what you've already built that's supposed to be done, then 
advancing forward, there's something wrong back there that you need to go back to and fix. So then the goal becomes, okay, what is the one thing that is causing me the most grief? This type of a failure or whatever. Okay, I'm going to go fix that. Okay, I'm going to give myself a timeline to fix that. It's a really, really easy way to fix things. And then you have to, with all of this in mind, accept four things that are the most critical to making all this work. Budgets, number one. How much time do you have and how much money do you have? So I'm going to say budget. I said budgets. right? And I'm not even breaking. You know, I can say budgets because we're going to break down like payroll if we're doing a large farm or something. No. Money budget, time budget at the macro level. Because a lot of times people have the money. They don't have the time. So now you need to think about time optimization in implementation and management and harvest of a system of its agricultural. A lot of times people have a lot of time, but they don't have a lot of money. So now we have to be financially, you know, optimized. And we have how, or we also have to say, listen, you know, with the money that I have, this idea is just off the table. Here's what I can do. And do that. Your ability. You accept your lack of skill. Your lack of experience. And your lack of knowledge. And don't confuse your knowledge with your ability. I can describe to you exactly how to do a heart bypass. I really don't think you should have me do it. <laughs> okay? <laughs> I mean, seriously, I can read a book. And down to like, you know separate, you know, how to cut the sternum, how to crack the chest, when to turn the bypass machine on. I, I mean, I, I, can t I can give you, I can know that cold. I don't, but I could. I could probably start today and tomorrow get on here and do a podcast of exactly how to do a heart bypass. And with my stupid retention ability, I could probably do it with very little to no notes. I still don't recommend... Myself is your heart bypass surgeon. And not just because the state says I don't have a little piece of paper, which in this case I kind of agree with you should have. So you can know exactly what needs to be done and still do it wrong. You can describe exactly, precisely the right way to throw a football. And you can even know the method as far as how you hold it, where your arm comes back to, where it goes to. But if you've never thrown a football in your life, your first, their first throw, what's the old cliche that's going to piss some people off? You throw like a girl. right? You don't even throw like a girl. Because I know girls throw a hell of a lot better than that. You throw like an idiot. You just can't throw any. But you know, in a day, you can throw a football reasonably well, but you ain't going to throw it like Joe Montana. So your ability is a design restriction. Your ability as far as what you know, but your ability to implement is, you know, do you have physical impairments that are going to reduce the amount of time you can work? That's part of your ability. Everybody's equal. No, they're not. No, they're not. You know, I mean, I to make it completely blunt, I am far superior to a pig in a lot of things, Right? Like reading would be one. I can read better than any pig you'll ever find. I promise you. I have opposable thumbs. So if you want the ability to, you know, climb a tree, for instance, you know, frankly, there's a reason I don't have a giant slash in my leg a time or two because I could climb a tree when a pig was angry at me. 
All right? So I have a superior ability, thankfully for my legs, to climb a tree than a pig does. So I'm superior to a pig. No. Pigs can do some things I can't do. They can survive in environments where I would die. They can digest things that I cannot digest. I wouldn't be really good at tearing up the ground with my face. So the pig in those, those things is superior to me. It has abilities I do not. So I always have to be conscious of the limitations of my abilities and the abilities of others that I might depend on. That's another huge mistake, especially in business. This guy's going to take care of this stuff. Are they actually able to? Because a lot of times they can't. Market realities. You have to accept market realities. If there is no way in hell you're going to sell pastured poultry for the amount of money you need to in your market to be profitable, then you don't need to be doing pastured poultry for profit. That's probably one of the things that you, in most places, you will be able to figure out how to do. But if the market is not there and you do not have the ability to build it, so now we're going back to your ability and create that market, then that's a reality and you need to do something different with it. And, and you, 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 you know, your, your backyard guy thinks, well, that doesn't apply to me. Well, it might. If you're growing something that takes a lot of time and ends up being expensive, that a high-quality version of it is easily procured for not much money, you're probably better off taking that time and money and doing something else with it that's not easily procured at high quality or for a reasonable amount of money. So we always have to look at the market realities around us. If we're spending $4 a dozen to produce our own eggs instead of buying $1.80 eggs from the supermarket, we can justify the improvement in quality. But if you're spending $20 to produce a dozen eggs, you're doing something wrong. Or you're just in the wrong place to do it. Now, I don't know where it would ever go that wrong, but I'm using the extreme to make an example. And then we do have to accept our climatic limitations. I think one of the places we've gotten in trouble is we look at something like Sepp Holzer growing a, a lemon tree in the middle of the Alps. I don't even know how valid that really is. But I know he ain't making money on lemons. I know he ain't growing a, a lemon freaking you know, uh, orchard in the middle of the Alps. We have this one lemon tree that he's somehow figured out how to make survive. It really is not the, the, the way that you judge how much you can do in your climate. Well, if he can do that there, I can do that here in Texas. You probably can. In some ways, it actually might be harder, though, in a place where it freezes in Texas because it's a totally different climate. So you do have to accept the limitations of your climate. Here's a perfect example. I have not done enough to get enough irrigation in place to really maximize what can be done on this piece of property. And I have not automated it sufficiently to where it doesn't require me to go out and manually do it all the time. So with that in mind, you know, I either have to get that done or I'm never going to get what I really want out of this property. And that's a climatic limitation. And I've had people, people that are pretty good permaculturists come here and explain to me why I don't really need to do that. One long-haired, red-haired guy uh, has continuously told me that I'm already using too much irrigation. He has no idea what he's talking about. He's still living in a world that is based on what you want to be true. And it doesn't take into account the fact that you can only hold so much water in four inches of soil. There's just you, you can only hold so much water there. That's all that's available. You can do the calculation with math. It can't be 100% water because then it would be a lake. It can, if it gets a certain amount of 
water, it starts to flood. So we can't overdo it. So we can only apply so much water. And that water will take up a certain amount of volume within that space. And when it's 107 degrees out, no matter how much mulch we put down, how much we use shade strategically, etc., it will only last so long before it needs more water. And when it doesn't rain, when it doesn't rain for eight weeks, and you don't irrigate, anything you're growing there is going to die. You can't deny that. If you're in Death Valley, I bet you could come up with something. But it's going to be hard. You have to accept the climatic limitations. So with all that in mind, I want to end with why I still think permaculture, when understood, is the best of all worlds when it comes to feeding yourself and solving problems. And the reason that I think permaculture is the best of all worlds is actually dramatically simple. It is because it is inherently flexible to any situation and rules out nothing so long as you're not harming people or the planet and as long as you're returning surplus. So that there is absolutely nothing that can't be not that can't be made to work unless it's lining people up and shooting them in the head, right? Unless it's setting massive amounts of jungle on fire. Unless it's something that is extremely retarded to do in the first place that we all know we shouldn't do. There's nothing we can't make work within the realm of permaculture which means that it will always be evolving and adapting to the latest challenges, the latest problems, the latest situations. It is not dogmatic in its approach. It's one of the reasons that it's difficult to understand and difficult to grasp when, when people become students of permaculture and they start taking PDCs and other online courses, offline courses, etc., doing self-study. It's, it's one of the places where it's so great that it's hard to understand. Because it's so flexible, I can't give you exercises like I might in something even as complex as chess. In chess, we can teach you, hey, when the board looks like this, here's how you can actually end the game in three moves. Or you're in danger of the game ending in three moves, and here is how to prevent that. And once you memorize that layout, it isn't that you set it up, it's that you either see you're heading there, or you see that you are there and you know what to do. And I can give you a hundred, you know, diagrams of, of particular levels of the game of chess, and you can you can have a right and a wrong answer. If you're swinging a golf club at a golf ball, there's a right way to do it. There's several different, you know, techniques at, at the the minutia level, but in the end, the club has to come from behind. It has to come straight. The face has right. There's certain things that have to be in place for that that swing to be effective. And you can get a coach, and somebody can coach you over and over again until you. Get very good, if not, you know, get great at your golf swing. If I'm teaching you mathematics, we can start out with addition and subtraction. You can do what everybody does. You can memorize, you know, 1 through 12 addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. And then we can take those and we can create problems for you and you can work them out on a worksheet. You can solve them and I can evaluate you and tell you what you're doing wrong. Because all of these things have very hard, fast rules. Permaculture is a science, and science is one of the most misused words in, in modern vernacular. When they say things like, the science is settled, doesn't even matter what it's about. If science is settled, it's not science. Science is the continuous study, the continuous accumulation of knowledge in a methodical way about a given thing. So even if we come up with a, a system that works beautifully 
for permaculture. And we can say if you are designing a quarter-acre urban permaculture system in a basic square with this particular layout, this will work in these ten climates, right, or these, these five zones or whatever. Well, you still don't know that it's the best, And it still might not work for some people because, gee, it grows a lot of figs, and I don't like figs. In fact, my kids are allergic to them, and if they go outside and eat that, they'll die. Right? So there's always something that, that, that is a variable when you're dealing with something as complex as designing a living system. So the method by which it, it's done, and this is where it's so superior to modern agriculture, you know, seed at X rate, irrigate at Y rate. Fertilize at Z rate. It's not how it works. That's not how living systems work. Permaculture allows for adaptation. I've, I've heard Larry Korn, who I have great respect for as well, talk about how natural farming is superior to permaculture. And I'm like, natural farming is, is an expression of permaculture. And, and he would say, well, you know, you're, you're getting pinpoint with your designs and making these pictures and all. No, that's a type of permaculture. It is so broad and so varied that as long as it follows the ethics and the prime directive, it remains permaculture. And as long as it follows logical systems thinking, it remains permaculture. That's all that's required. So I don't know how there could be anything, quote-unquote, better. Because whatever you're telling me is better either is somehow harmful to people in the planet, and therefore it's not as good as it could be, or it is permaculture. You understand that. I mean, like, this is where I think people get too boxed into a lens. There's all these great things that have come out of the minds of people with permaculture thinking that create all these, the, these methods, that give us the ability to practice methods and develop techniques, that create strategies, both macro and micro strategic ideas of planning and implementation and interconnectedness and function stacking, and all these other wonderful things. But in the end, it's, it, it's, it's, it's more like sculpting than anything else. In fact, I would say it's more like creating with clay than anything else. Because even with sculpting, you know, okay, this is a block of marble. I can only do so many different designs with it. I have a limitless choice or a limitless set of choices and decisions that I can draw from as a permaculture designer with actually very few limitations. I have the inherent limitations to the site, and then as a discipline I have the limitations of how I treat people, how I treat the planet, and the fact that if I'm generating a surplus of anything, I need to think constructively about what I do with it. Other than that, it's, it's what... Some people claim the Constitution is that the Constitution isn't. It's a living, breathing thing that is flexible and dynamic. It's not a contract. It's not dogma. It's not something you can really put into a concrete textbook and say, this is exactly what permaculture is. It's a guidance of creativity. So I just don't think there can be anything better, and it's why I encourage you encourage you to learn more about it. And don't be afraid of learning the methods and the techniques. Just understand that then you need to step back to the strategy level and figure out if they're right for you and how they're right for you and the scale at which they're right for you. If you do that, it will do more for your life than anything you can imagine. And you'll start finding that it won't just apply to your backyard and how you manage your little backyard flock of chickens and how you grow your corn. 
It'll apply to how you manage your finances. It'll apply to how you figure out how to hire the right person, how to run a business, etc. It is that broad and that dynamic. With that, we have wrapped up today's show. I want to remind you guys one of the ways you can help support this show is what? By doing your online shopping at a little website called tspaz.com. My, uh, my misery with tspaz.com as of this morning when I started recording, I haven't checked uh, since doing so, continues with uh, some problems with domain, uh, the domain provider. So if you go to tspaz.com today, it may work for most people. It might still have a problem for others. So if that happens, just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on the tspaz tab. You can see all the stuff that I recommend. And anytime you do your online shopping through tspaz, it helps survival podcasts and the work that we do. It's also Prime Day. Uh, Prime Day seems to be more than one day, actually. And, and because of that, um, I brought around a product that I mentioned yesterday that I'm actually going to feature as a product of the day today because the deal on it is so damn good. Guys, I've become a huge fan of sous vide cooking. Sous vide is where we use hot water to cook with. And we don't just use hot water to cook with. We use hot water at a precisely dialed-in temperature. If we want a steak to be 135 degrees then it's going to be 135 degrees. If we want it to be 143 degrees, it's going to be 143 degrees. It's going to be whatever we want. We're going to get that perfect cooked steak or whatever we're cooking. And you think, well, hot water is going to be like boiling. It's No, no. It goes inside a bag or inside a silicon container or something like that. And that allows it to only just take in the heat. We can season wonderful things. And it just is amazing way to cook. I love cooking with sous vide. Um, the sous vide cooker that I finally settled on after trying uh, a couple is the Anova. And the Anova has the ability, you can either get the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth or the Bluetooth-only version. And with the Bluetooth-only version, you get an app for your phone, you turn your phone on, and you set your cooker to however you want it, and you have to be in Bluetooth range. With the Wi-Fi version, the cooker actually attaches to your home network as a device. And that means you can run your cooker from your office or anywhere with an internet connection on your phone through the app. Why would you do that? Well, you could take your steaks and put them in your pot while they're frozen. You could fill that pot with ice, and you could go to work. And since it's going to take longer to cook since it's frozen, about two hours before you get home, you pull up your phone and say start. And since it's not a timer, if you have to work late that day or whatever, it doesn't start too early. And when you get home, your steak's ready to be seared off. You take it out of the bag. You throw it on a hot skillet real quick just to sear it off and give it that nice caramelization, and it's done. It's awesome. I've talked about it before, so I won't talk about it anymore today, except I wanted to let you guys know about this deal. So how good is this deal? The Anova sold originally when it came out about two years ago for $200 for the one with the Wi-Fi and the Bluetooth. It's on sale today for $108. $108. That's as cheap as some of the knockoff cheapos that are not worth buying. If you don't need the Wi-Fi, and many of you won't, I mean, that's something that only certain people are going to use, right? If you just want the Bluetooth version, where you can just use it as, an, as a sous vide cooker, 80 bucks, actually, $79.99. It's available on Prime, Prime Day today. Uh, you can go to survivalpodcast.com and scroll down. Remember, tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Uh, you guys go to there. You should get redirected to all of my reviews. If you don't, let me know. I'd like to know how many people are still having problems with this. I think I have some weird cache go on with my computer. I can't get it clear because uh, it works fine on my phone now. Anyway, um, check it out. Do your shopping at tspaz.com, and you can always get to tspaz.com if it's not working by going to the Survival Podcast and clicking on the tspaz page. Uh, 
Next up, I want to remind you that, hey, if you like this show, if you like the work we do, consider becoming a member. You become a member, you help us out, and you get your money back with discounts. That's all I'll say about that today. Because I want to go to our song of the day. The song of the day, we're in Elton John week. And I said that this week you would get songs from Elton John that you were like, everybody knows that song, and some that maybe you're not so familiar with. I think this is one that a lot of people will not be familiar with. But as soon as you hear it, you'll be like, oh, that's Elton John. Even though you might not be like, oh, I know that song. Or, you know, maybe you do. It all depends on who you are and what type of music you've followed throughout your life. But as I said yesterday, one of the things that's like amazing about Elton John is there was a period of time that was something like 20 years, maybe more, where this guy never had a single week where he didn't have at least one song in the top 40. I mean, it's insane. This one goes all the way back to 1971. It was the title track on the album that it was on. And it was called Madman Across the Water. Now, there are two songs that, if you know anything about Elton John, you would know that came off that album. They are Tiny Dancer and Levon. And so this is probably one of the lesser-known songs off of the album, but yet it is the title track of the album. Uh, it's a very dark song with some Leon Russell influence. Bernie Tomp had made up the story about a lunatic ranting on the visiting day at the asylum. Predictably, it wasn't very chart-worthy, but it did provide an album title and plenty of speculation that Elton was singing about the United States President Richard Nixon. Toppin said that wasn't the case, although he was quite amused with the interpretation. He says the lunatic in the song wasn't based on anyone in particular. What I find interesting about that is how people will assign a belief to something without any knowledge. Because believe it or not, when I looked up, like, looked and started digging through the comments on this song, uh, there were there were comments saying that it was about Donald Trump. <laughs> the song was written in 1971. Um, and, it, and, it, so, and it's not really important in of itself, but the, the, the thing I'm pointing out is how people will grab onto something and they will assign a meaning to it with no facts, with no justification, with no source, and then they'll get offended when you tell them that's not the case. And we've gotten a place in society where that's, like, instead of the exception, that's becoming the rule. It meets my perception bias. It meets my confirmation bias. Therefore, it's true. Therefore, I will defend it. On the other hand, what's great about this song is just an excellent piece of music. It's actually a very interesting song. It's a very creative piece of art. And it actually should have been chart-worthy, but unfortunately in our society today and in 1971, people really aren't big on things with a lot of depth. You know, They like the easy-to-understand, easy-to-repeat, easy-to-accept narrative. They don't really like to be made to think. I think this song works out great because what we talked about today was thinking deeply. If you actually follow through and listen to the words of this song, it'll take your mind in a lot of directions with the madman across the water. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to leave that, live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I can see very well There's a boat on the reef with a broken back I can see it very well There's a joke in the knowing very well 
One of those. 